Amazon. Amazon Prime changed the way we shop. It was not the brainchild of Jeff Bezos. Equally, Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway's single most successful investment ever, Apple. That was not an investment that Warren Buffett wanted to make. So yes, these are extraordinary leaders, but arguably what they have done that isn't so brilliant is to build an organization that enables great people, many great people, everybody to use their brains. They will be curious if we allow them. What we see from the research right now is we we don't set up structures that do that. Even in this, right? What could they possibly know? They just got here. They just started the job, right? And so it's almost like, you know, just sit down, be quiet, learn the job. Is that what we really want? I mean, we've got someone who's thinking differently. We've got someone who would look at a job and say, I've never done this before. Why do you do it that way, right? But what happens when we do what I just said? Why do you do it that way? We're like, well, that's the way we do it here, right? Basically get in line and do the thing that we told you to do. Welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast hosted by Andy Lapata, the show where Andy and his guests explore the many ways in which relationships impact business decisions, make leaders' jobs easier, and help you to progress your career. Hello, and welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast. I'm Andy Lapata. Thank you very much for joining me. It has become a bit of a recurring theme in these podcasts, and I think in a couple of recent ones, I've drawn our attention to it, and that is this this idea of being the smartest person in the room. And I constantly mention or refer back to our conversation with Daniela Lander, ex of Google, when she talked about developing a learning quotient, stop trying to be the, the, the right person and try and be the best learner in the room. And I actually interviewed Daniela recently for an event for the fellows of the Learning and Performance Institute, which is mainly heads of learning from organizations around the world. Uh, and one of the, the people who was on that session uh, and I started uh, chatting and a lot of what Daniela said had really resonated with her. And I, I looked at what she did and I said, you know what, you should come on the podcast. So let's dive deeper into this topic because, you know, it's not something I'd really thought of in terms of what I do as a core pillar of professional relationships. I was always aware of the power of curiosity and showing an interest in other people. But I hadn't dived as deep until Daniela said that. And since then, it's really just your reticular activating system. Something, you know, plays out in front of you and it's on your radar and you spot it everywhere. And that seems to have happened, including on this podcast. Um, so I invited my guest today to join us to have a deep dive into the critical mindset of curiosity and what does it mean to be curious and and how can it show up in the workplace? How can it really make a difference to us as leaders and, and in our relationships as well, which is really key. So my guest is Steph Orping. She's the co-founder and chief learning officer at Leadership & Co. So they really say, <laughs> say what they mean in their name in St. Louis in the US. They're a leadership development company founded on building critical skills and cultivating curious minds, which is a strap line I absolutely love and it fits what we want to talk about to the T. So Steph, thank you so much for joining me on the Connected Leadership Podcast. Yeah, you're so welcome, Andy. I'm really glad to be here and I also enjoyed Daniela immensely and I'm so glad you reached out to me. Well, it just made so much sense. I mean, you did the really abundant thing of you didn't actually reach out direct to me. I saw you engage a lot in the chat and so forth through the session. 
but you just told someone else that they should talk to me. Uh, and we're still trying to sort out that date. We were meant to speak this week and it didn't happen, but we will. We are going to. Um, but then from there, when he said that, you know, why he had reached out to me, because he just reached out on LinkedIn, I became curious and, and wanted to find out more about you. So I guess that leads us in perfectly to our topic, because I was curious about who had told him to talk to me. I looked at your LinkedIn profile and I became curious about what you do. And I am curious about this topic of curiosity. Uh, so let's start with how it shows up in, in the workplace and in leadership. When does curiosity really make a difference to leaders and in professional relationships? Can I go back just slightly, Andy, to it's something that I heard during your intro, and that is, what is it? Um, it's this thing that we all, you know, we say curiosity, do we, do, but do we really know what that means? And so the way that I think maybe just to ground us in what it means, it's the opposite of certainty, right? It's this quest for information that we don't know. And we believe it's an active thing. There couldn't be just kind of this curiosity that doesn't go anywhere. You know, it, it's just thoughts for you. But but we really like to think about it. It's this active kind of seeking out information. It's uh, trying to get yourself to think differently. It's It's actively challenging assumptions and biases. And it's really being a learn-it-all versus a know-it-all, because I think I heard you say that in the intro. We've grown up thinking that we have to have all the answers. And in today's environment, like you just can't possibly. Things are moving way too quickly for you to have all the answers. And so it's this idea about how can we be a learn-it-all versus the know-it-all that I think we were all kind of grown up. I'm saying that negatively, but I really do believe that we've all thought that we're supposed to be the smartest person in the room. And I think we're realizing there are moments of that where we really have a deep expertise, but the vast majority of the time, things are just changing so quickly, we just can't. So that's a little bit, I just wanted to ground us in, what, what do we mean by it? So now let me talk about the question you actually Before, Steph, let me just cu- come in on that. Let's come back to, to the, the, the where it shows up in the workplace, because I'm, I'm really pleased you gave us that definition. I, I made the assumption that we knew what we're talking about, which I, I guess is part of curiosity is not making assumptions. That's that right. we know or, or that other people do. But something that you said is has really resonated with me. First of all, I love become a learn it all rather than a know it all. I think it's a lovely different way of saying what Daniela said in, in the podcast that I, I presented with her or, or, or talked to her in. But the other thing that really resonated is the role of our upbringing in stifling curiosity. Because I... Over the last decade or two, I think I've thought more and more about how we educate children in our society and how I was educated. And now you say that, it makes me reflect on a school environment where it was about the teacher expecting you to know the answer because you've done that, your homework. I wrote learning, you know, learn your stuff and, re- and repeat it in class. And that's not learning. That's memory games. That's right. And, and rather than stimulating curiosity in children by getting them to ask the teacher questions <laughs> and trying to work through solutions on that. And I'm sure there are teachers that do that, particularly even more so now than there they were the millions of years ago that I went to school uh, and even back then, I'm sure there were teachers that, that did stimulate curiosity more than others. But rote learning, I think, probably kills that. With that, so is our upbringing stifling our ability to be curious? 
100%. So you've lived it. And I don't think your experience is different for most of us. And so not just our upbringing, but everything kind of from then on is actually doing the opposite of what we want it to. And so there's so much data and evidence around that. And I've done a lot of study around growth mindset. Actually, a a dear friend of ours, Eve Masita, who we do a lot of work with, talks a lot about growth mindset. And again, how we lose that so quickly. And and it really is. It's all of our systems. It starts early on with school, just as you said. I'll actually go back and talk about a study. The first time anyone ever studied curiosity, it was George Land. And he was uh, asked to, he was a system social uh, scientist, and they asked him to do a study. NASA asked him to do a study back during the space age, uh, or space race, sorry, in like 19, late 1960s. And NASA was looking for, how do we get kind of these creative, curious minds to work for NASA as they're thinking about trying to send people to the moon? And he was really intrigued by this. So he developed a system to test creativity. Now, I'm using that as a proxy for uh, curiosity, but there's a lot of data that says I'm right in doing so. You can't have creativity without curiosity. It's kind of the bedrock foundation. And what he found was when he tested, um, so after he built the uh, diagnostic for NASA, his curiosity was sparked. Like, what? How does this show up? And 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 why can't I find really curious mind adults to work at NASA? So he started a, a test, and he tested sixteen hundred young children as they were getting to school age. And he found when he tested them at five years old, ninety eight percent of them on his diagnostic tested creative and curious. By ten, what would your guess be, Andy? What do you think? By ten. What do you think? How many people were curious and creative at 10 years old? Down down to below 50%. 30%. So good guess, but even worse than you thought. So by the time they got to 10, only about 30% of them. And I think it's exactly what you just articulated. Like we socialized it out of them. Raise your hand. Don't ask questions. Even if you don't know the answer, pretend you do, right? And so judgment of ourselves Judgment of each other. Why don't they know that? We just covered that. Judgment from the teacher who's our authority figure. All of these things, even so much where there's other tests that would show if you hand a child a blank piece of paper and say, draw something, they just go to work. By the time they get to school-age children, they start to ask a lot of questions. What do you want me to draw? Is this the right color? Does this look right to you? So again, we take this like just we're fine to just take risks and do things as a very young child. And uh, that gets socialized really quickly. Now, let me go back to my uh, Dr. Land study because it gets worse. By the time they get to 15, now when we got all those social pressures, right? 15, like our adolescents really think we're being judged by others. It goes down to about 12%. Andy, by the time we get to be adults, it's minuscule. And it's why George Land couldn't find good NASA folks. It's down to about 2%, which is like sad, sad, sad. And so it's not just school, right? Then it becomes our company culture. Then it becomes how we even went through university. It becomes all of those things to kind of get in line and conform all those social pressures, really just sort of like, you know, it, it, it sucks it out of us. It's a very bleak picture you play paint and and you know going back to the question that i interrupted you the one that i interrupted you answering earlier about how it shows up in the workplace it sort of reframes that as well because if it's socialized out of us as kids and the numbers diminish at the rate that you're talking about you know 
I would imagine that in most organizations, nothing is being done to rebalance the process because under pressure leaders are discouraging questioning and curiosity, aren't they? They're, they're turning around and if someone turns around and says, what exactly do you want me to do? They'll, they'll snap back, work it out for yourself. That's what I pay you for. Is that a problem that we're facing? Absolutely. Although you say I paint a bleak picture and certainly I did. Rightly so. But I do believe it's changing. I really do. And part of that is because I re- I think we're realizing the benefit of being curious at work is so strong. Again, especially in today's environment, how fast we're moving, et cetera. So frankly, if we were having this conversation before we started Leadership & Co. five years ago, I'm not sure I would have a whole lot of difference of opinion But what we've seen, and some of it is on our radar, so we see it, you know, we see curiosity everywhere, but it really is changing. So just this year, for instance, LinkedIn has seen a 90% spike in job postings that have curiosity as part of it. I would go back to an example, the CEO of Microsoft, Satya Nadella, talks about he credits curiosity and growth mindset with the success of Microsoft over the last, you know, seven to eight years. Um, Jeff Bezos in a uh, letter to his shareholders, this is back in 2019, but he said, we need people that are curious explorers. We need people that want to invent. Even when they're experts, we need for them to have a fresh beginner's mind. So again, we're seeing it show up in so many places. It's in company values. I'd actually point to a couple studies about the skills that are critical, and I could go on and on in those. So whether it be World Economic Forum, whether it be DDI, whether it be work that McKinsey's doing, again, I could go on. Curiosity is actually showing up as a critical skill today, and it usually rises. So it's usually in the top 10, if not the top five. And when you look at critical skills for tomorrow, so for instance, a World Economic Forum, it bumps up to like number five on their list of critical skills as we move into like 2025. It's not kind of a nice to have or something that we sort of talk about. It is absolutely something that companies are recognizing that could provide a a true competitive advantage. I, I think it would be fair to assert that some people are more curious than others. Given the way it's socialized out of us, what do you think happens to mean people hold on to that curiosity or regenerate it otherwise? Why are some people more curious than others? How do we identify those people and how, how do we bring everyone else into the same space that they're in? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sidestep your question for just a moment and I'll come back to it. And and let me talk about, I, I said I said competitive advantage, but I want to make sure that I maybe just quickly run through the list. Like, what do we mean by competitive advantage? Like, to be curious, like, what does that really do for us? Both as us as an individual, but also for the organizations we work for. So there's a lot of data around efficiency and productivity. As a matter of fact, they show that you can be up to 40% more productive if you're a curious individual. Um, You're just figuring out ways to do your work better and faster. Definitely lots of data around you're more creative and innovative. And again, I just pointed to that earlier, but there's absolutely studies that bore that out to be true. Teamwork, this idea that we are more curious about one another, we slow down, we're more empathetic. So very much tied to EQ and inclusivity that so many of us are talking about. And then it shows if an organization is really embracing 
curiosity and asking you to show up curious and rewarding curiosity, people want to stay. So you're up to 16 times more likely to stay with an organization that really embodies and embraces curiosity. And that's a financial impact, right? Especially for organizations that have got high turnover that are struggling with retention. And then also just the last thing I would mention is there's proof around it makes us more flexible, resilient, adaptable. And again, in these times of change, that totally matters. They even say curious individuals are more apt to kind of look around and kind of take stock of the environment around us, which again, leads to breakthroughs, being more um, just again, you see the changes coming. It doesn't feel like you're being kind of a victim to change. So uh, that's what I really mean by it makes a difference. It really makes a difference. So now, now I'll go back to, you said, you know, some people are more curious than others. And, and why is that? And then what do we do about it? So I, I didn't miss your question. I'll definitely go back to that. But as we think about kind of what, what makes us different, a lot of this is in our environment. So some of it is within us. You know, even a flower can thrive in a concrete park if it has kind of the tenacity and resilience to do so. Uh, but it's really hard. So if you don't have an organization that embraces it, if you weren't brought up in a structure that has embraced it, again, so much of that has been socialized out of us. But there are people that are just more resilient. And again, nature, nurture, we could debate that probably all day long. But there are certainly people who came up in an environment and still somehow they're like insatiably curious. I think to go back to the real thing at hand, how do we build curiosity and can you do it? And the answer that not just we have found, but other organizations studying curiosity, it 100% can be found again. So I almost want to edit what I said earlier, because I said it gets socialized out of us. It's never out of us. It's in us. We just suppress it. And so in those environments where it gets nurtured, when we nurture it in ourselves and do the things to make us more curious, it can be found again. I know, Andy, one of the, the things we talked about kind of before this is, you know, age. And so I'll sort of get ahead of that question, if you're okay with it. Do we get more or less curious as we age? And it's a really interesting question as I age, as we're all aging, right? I want to know, am I going to get less curious? The answer is really kind of funny on that. There's lots of studies that say we do get less curious with age. There's lots of studies that say that we don't, um, that we actually get a little bit more curious about the world around us, particularly as we get out of the world that we grew up in, the working world. So unless you become kind of sedentary, right? And we do know, unfortunately, some individuals become more sedentary as they age. But if you don't do that, it's almost like you look for ways to find to keep yourself busy, whether that be in retirement, a second career, you're just more interested in what's going around you because you have more time to do it. And so I think what I just said right there is such a factor. We don't find the time to do it. We don't, our leaders don't, our organizations don't. And just like so many things that we could point to, I mean, time is the enemy. We're just not making time for it. I think it's really interesting, your point about age, because speaking from a personal perspective solely, I would argue that I'm more curious in some ways and less curious in others. So I think there's a lot of context there. There's a lot about personality there. But for example, I was very active in social projects when I was at late teen school and university. And those sort of things I engage with, but not to the same level now that I did then. On the other hand, 
I read a lot more and a broader range of topics than I ever did at school or university. So, I mean, I've always read nonfiction since I was at school. I, I won a book prize and I thought the comedy fiction writer that I favoured at the time would probably not be the prize. The, the prize was book tokens and you went and bought the books and you were presented with them at the speech day. And I didn't think a, a bunch of books from a comedy writer from the best British light blue humour would be the most appropriate thing to get in, as a debating prize at the speech day. So I got political memoirs and a memoir and a, a biography of Byron and so forth. And I just found I loved reading nonfiction. So I've done that for a long time. But in recent years, I found myself reading science books, whereas I only studied one science at school because I had to, and I got a really bad grade. So I just wasn't curious about it. I have less time now than I did then. I wonder how much of it is about learning because you want to or learning because you're told to. Curiosity because you are genuinely interested versus curiosity because it's instructed. And that it felt as that thought came to my mind, it felt like a bit of a, a step away from the conversation we should have about how people can really adopt this in the workplace and its role in leadership. But actually, I don't think it is, because if we understand that curiosity is more impactful if it's motivated selfishly rather than forced, then that affects how we bring a team that we lead into a curious space. I, I I couldn't agree more. So there's three types of curiosity. And the one that you just described is this cognitive curiosity, where we're seeking information, we're filling in gaps, and it feels, or we're solving problems, right? And we're feeding kind of the cognitive part of our brain, like we're figuring it out. And what you just described, we get dopamine rushes from it, right? Like it feels good. You're learning, like you can feel kind of you're like soaking it in and you're filling it up. And that feels good. And the more you do it, the more you get rewarded, right? And so again, we're finding those neural pathways. We're actually like truly teaching ourselves again, how to be curious. But there's other curiosities too. And I want to make sure that it's not confused. Like we're not saying you have to read books. That's not exactly what we mean by curiosity. It's a great way to feed your brain, but there can be social curiosity. You're curious about others. I mentioned kind of the tie to EQ earlier. And this is one area where uh, women tend to excel. I think there's a lot of research around the fact that that women are often more empathetic. So even as we think about in the workplace, I really encourage men to kind of, you know, think about what is that social curiosity? How are you engaging with others? How are you really curious about their feelings and what they're going to? I always feel like I got to preface that though, also with like, there can be a morbid curiosity or maybe I'll just call it a creepy curiosity. Like, also make sure you're giving people privacy. So that it could go too far, right? There is something to curiosity killed the cat. Curiosity can get to be too much. And then there's final, so there's three things, the cognitive curiosity, the social curiosity, and then there's the reflective curiosity. And so people who are practicing mindfulness, people who are practicing journaling, again, same dopamine rush. Like we're actually finding that we're getting benefits from our brain that is telling us, this is good. You should do this. This feels good to understand your own thoughts and beliefs and values and to be more reflective, again, gives us some of those same rushes. So I want to be careful not to say it's all about going to museums and taking trips and reading books. All of those things are fantastic, but it can be just, it can be the people side of things too, having better convert, more rich conversations, talking to people you wouldn't have before. And again, just doing even some of that like mindfulness, like thinking about what are you thinking about 
and be more thoughtful on that. I'm going to totally give you props on what you said. All of those things I just mentioned, journaling, talking to people you don't normally talk to, reading books that you wouldn't, going to a museum, traveling to a different place. All of those things make you a more rich individual and they're just filling up this cranium, right? They're filling up our brain. And what is amazing about our brain, and at this point, computers are not nearly as good as we are. So this is where we're going to excel against the computers, right? For everybody talking about AI, AI, AI. Our brains make associations really well. And so all of those things that you do that feel like they've got no bearing on the work that you do, it's amazing how your brain will find something and make a connection. But what happens, Andy, this goes back to the conversation earlier, when my brain is making those connections and I think they're slightly interesting, or maybe I'm actually like, am I crazy for thinking that this might be associated with this? If I'm not in an environment where I'm free to say that, if I'm not in an environment where my leader says, Steph, that's interesting, or what are you thinking, but I'd like to hear more. If I'm not in that environment, I hold it in. I hold it in and and it goes nowhere and we don't innovate and we're not breakthrough ideas, right? We're just kind of status quo, same thing. And that's, it becomes very unrewarding for me and I keep it in. And so we talked about age a moment ago and you were talking about kind of coming up through university and you feel like you're more curious now. The data actually says that you're very similar to what uh, the research finds. I think in some ways we think younger folks might be more curious, but they've spent so much time kind of coming up through university and school that they're not. They're learning because they have to, just as you identified We actually find them the most creative and curious group tends to be those kind of in kind of middle age, kind of 35 to 50-ish, because you're probably getting to do those things. You're learning because you want to. Um, You feel like you have kind of more freedom of exploration as long as you find the time to do it. Andy's new book, Just Ask, Why Seeking Support is Your Greatest Strength, is out now. Looking at the importance of asking for help and admitting vulnerability, it's an essential read in challenging times. Order your copy from Amazon and all good book retailers now, or visit andylapata.com forward slash just ask. I, I do think we, we just have to put a little disclaimer here that not all of us believe that 35 is middle-aged. You're uh, <laughs> um, here. here. <laughs> uh, I, I appreciate the distinction, and I like these categories of cognitive curiosity, social curiosity, and reflective curiosity, if I've got those correct. Obviously, the cognitive is the one that I talked about. Social curiosity, well, that goes to the heart of relationship building, which is ultimately what this podcast is all about. So that interest in other people, and one of the sayings that I repeat most often in my work is Dale Carnegie talking about the sweetest sound to any man being the sound of his own name. So if you ask people questions, if you're, you show a genuine interest in them, they feel attracted towards you. And there's a famous social science experiment about that where they, they sat a researcher next to an unsuspecting passenger on a flight. And that researcher asked only questions about that person on the flight. So the whole conversation was about the unsuspecting passenger, lots of questions, and and everything was steered towards them. And then when that passenger came off the flight, there was another researcher waiting at the foot of the steps, and he said, we're just doing some research. Can I ask you about the person you sat next to? How interesting were they? 
And the passenger said, they were really interesting. And then they said, well, what can you tell us about them? And of course, they could say nothing about them because they didn't know anything about them. So social curiosity is a really powerful tool in relationship building, not putting your agenda first, but focusing on the other person's and and genuinely wanting to know about them. I, I emailed someone this morning who I met recently in London from the States, from New York, and I said, you're the best a question I've ever met. The questions he asked over dinner of me and of people around us in our group were phenomenal. They showed a genuine curiosity and they opened up really interesting conversation. Uh, and and the, the other part is the reflective curiosity. And some people might think, well, that's not about building relationships. That's about connecting with yourself. But one of the things that's come up in previous podcast conversations is that if you're not connected to yourself, it's a lot harder to connect to other people because you become a lot more comfortable in your own skin. And if you understand yourself and what drives you, you're then more tuned into other people and you find there are fewer barriers to connecting with them as well. So I just wanted to reflect on, ironically, your your point about reflection and, and socializing in terms of what we talk about on this podcast. But for my next question, I want to pick up on something else that you said. You said that women are typically more empathetic than men, which I think many people will recognize would you say that women, and, and I would assume these two things would be related if you'd agree with the statement, are women more curious than men? Again, Andy, it, it's it's interesting because I think the data says different things. So it depends on what study you read. I think the way I prefer to answer the question is, I, I don't think that actually is the case. From From what I've read, I don't necessarily think that women are more curious than men. What happens, though, in organizations, so again, I'm going to talk about, and and I'm talking in generalizations, what we do find is that women are more reluctant to be curious in the workplace. Lots and lots of studies around, they are more reluctant to ask questions in meetings. They don't want to look like they have the answer, right? So all these kind of barriers that they're up against, you know, trying to kind of cross that hurdle, don't show that you don't know, um, those sorts of things. I would almost say, based on what I've read, I I don't think there's anything to that. But I do think what we need to do as leaders, as coworkers, as teammates, we need to make sure that we're making the space for them to feel like they can bring their curiosity with no um, repercussions. And so we're encouraging questions from all genders. We are making sure that if we feel like there's an imbalance in our team, we're recognizing the imbalance and we're saying, what's going on here? Why does it feel like, you know, the gentlemen in the room are constantly jumping in and the the women are second to speak. And so again, that speaks to so many things that we see going on in terms of, you know, the work around diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, all of those things. But I'll be honest, you know, as I see so much of that work going on around this belonging and inclusion and the power of diversity to, truly make our organizations more innovative and better and reflect the customer base that that we sell to. Again, for me, and again, it, I certainly have a bias in this, but it does come down to curiosity. Um, and so a- again, how are we rewarding and nurturing that? How are we building teams that are curious to know what everyone is saying? And so if we go to a meeting and we recognize half the room has spoken and half the room hasn't, fail. We should be questioning ourselves. Like, why am I only hearing from half the people? And so again, getting curious about why is that happening? And then how do we fix it? How do we make space for everyone to speak? How do we make sure that we're creating space for all of the ideas to flow? 
So again, I really do feel like at the heart of that, we just got to get curious. But even what I just said there, you've got to be curious about how are your meetings going? Like a true, like have the meeting take stock while you're in it, after it, what's going on there? What really happened? Who's showing up? What are we talking about? How much am I talking? How much are people as a leader, how many, how many people are following my lead versus thinking for themselves? And so again, without that curiosity, without taking stock, we do the same old, same old. It's, you know, rinse, repeat. It's interesting you talk about giving the space for women to be curious because that then, it, it makes you reflect on personality styles as well. So it's not just gender differences. And I want to ask you about other potential differences between groups in, in a moment. But you will have people on a team who w- might be more introverted and so aren't comfortable in that meeting to ask for clarification, to dive deeper. The more analytical people, the people who have the capacity to dive more deeply, more naturally, may not feel comfortable speaking up in a group scenario and actually doing that. So does your culture allow that? And then, you know, we had an episode recently with Sam Hugh looking at neurodiversity and how you engage with neurodivergent people in your team. Because for them to have the space to feel comfortable, because I, I would imagine a lot of people with ADHD, for example, would, again, there's a natural curiosity there, but a frustration at not being able to get to the answers at the speed that other people do. So are you creating space for that as well? So creating the space for curiosity is more about just giving to quite a gender the room to speak and the room to question. It's, it's about a lot of people, isn't it? Well, it is. And, you know, when you talk about neurodivergent, like we have to get curious about what that means. And I think I, I want to say this is, you know, Steph's personal opinion. When we don't take curiosity, when we see it as genuine curiosity and we don't assign any intent to it, like that's a thriving culture, right? So if I were to ask someone about who's neurodivergent, you said ADHD, what does that mean? What what does that look like for you? How does that show up for you at work? What does that mean for you in meetings? And again, this is where you could get, like if I peppered them with, with questions like that, it sounds like an interrogation, right? That That's ineffective. That's suddenly like, leave me alone. Or, you know, I, I don't want to answer these questions. But if I really say, you know, ask permission, I'd love to learn more about how you learn. I'd love to learn more, especially as a leader, if I said that. I want to get the best out of you. And I want to learn more about how I do that, Right. Like those conversations, and then for the person receiving that to say, to see that as genuine positive, like I want to learn more about you. I'm genuinely curious. There's no agenda other than I want to help you and see you successful. And if we can have those conversations and get for the person on the other end of it, not to take it as a truly you're questioning me because there's something behind it, but but genuine just learning more about each other. I had one of the best conversations ever, Andy. I happened to be in Thailand, happened to be delivering a program. And it was people from all over China, East Asia. Like it was, so this real interesting collection. And then here I am, you know, this Westerner in the room. And we gave each other permission to ask the questions that typically weren't talked about, or we made assumptions, right? And so even an example would be at the time, they still had the one child policy in China almost like you figure it's not something you talk about, right? We talked about it. And the woman from, that was from China was happy to talk about it. She doesn't often get asked. She doesn't often leave China. So she had this group of people and she kind of said, like, it's interesting that you all don't know this. From the US, we started talking about 
you know, our policies on maternity and paternity leave, parental leave. And people were amazed to find out that you go back to work very quickly after a child arrives in your home. But we had these genuine conversations and we learned so much. But the reason I say that example is it was such genuine curiosity and the permission was there to ask the dumb questions. And if we asked a question that felt like a little out of bounds, someone might say like, "Mm, that feels a little like a little over the line. But again, that environment, it sticks out to my mind just because it was like, I learned so much in the couple hours that we had dinner together that still, that was probably 15 years ago. And I still remember it like so acutely today because it was like, how do we create that again? Where we can just really get after the like, what is interesting and stop having surface level conversations. It's kind of like the example I think you said of the person the other night at dinner who was just asking the really interesting questions. We so often talk at surface level and it's safe, but it doesn't help us grow. What's the role of having an objective or an agenda in a conversation when it comes to curiosity? I'll explain my thinking behind this because you talked when you're talking about neurodiverse people and and then having those just really interesting conversations. You said something that just triggered this in me, that that it's important not to have an agenda, not to have an objective, because then you really let flow and you're authentic in that conversation. If you're looking to innovate, if you're looking to achieve a goal as a team, then you could argue, well, you need to know what you're working towards, so then your curiosity is directed. So where does it pay to have an agenda, pay to have an objective, and where do you leave that to one side? That's a really good question, Andy. And I would say, I think we always have an agenda. It's just sometimes it's an innocuous agenda, right? We, we do teach the power of why. So I'll, I'll channel Simon Sinek here for a moment. But we do teach the power of why. Even if I don't have an agenda, I should tell you that. Like, I truly don't have an agenda other than I really just want to learn from you right now. If I don't say that, if I don't preface the conversation, you're looking for the agenda. What are they after here? Why are they asking that question? Or maybe you're not. Maybe you're truly engaging in just a healthy banter conversation and you're taking my intent as positive. But but don't risk it. Always say what your agenda is. Even if your agenda is, I just want to know. I, I'm just really curious. I've never learned about this before. I'm just trying to feed my own brain. Um, or to your point, I do have an agenda here. We've got stale ideas on this. My agenda today is to get us out of stale ideas and we've got to innovate more. And I need to hear from every single person in the room. Maybe that, right? And so I'm being really clear about what are we doing here? What do I want to happen here? Especially as a leader, because if you don't signal it, it's not going to happen. And so again, so many times I think we think like we say things, (laughs) it's my pet peeve. We say things like, well, let's brainstorm this. And you're like, oh, okay. Let, let, let's brainstorm this, right? And so for all the things that we've said before, we've not brainstormed before. Typically when we've done it before, it's like two people talk or we brainstorm and somebody has a good idea and we immediately tear it down and tell them why it won't work. And so again, for a leader to say, let's brainstorm this. If we don't have an environment that thrives on brainstorming, like why would you say such a thing? We've got to even change our language. What do I want to happen right now? I might even say, look, we've not done great brainstorming before. It's hard to do. Let's do a couple things that'll help us brainstorm. But we need new innovative ideas. I need to hear from everyone. We need not to tear this down until we've really heard out the idea. Um, So again, as a leader, and I know a lot of your listeners are leaders, 
we have to signal what we want to happen. And so even to the point you just made, if it's a one-on-one conversation, I've got to be clear about what my goal is. And if it is that I don't have a goal, I need to tell you that. So you're not suspicious or you're not constantly thinking about what, what are they trying to get after here? And as a leader and the power that we hold when we speak, I think we just have to be really conscious of that. So I have a couple of further questions for you. I'm going to wrap two into one because I got so curious about other things and I'm aware of time as well, but I do want to ask these partly because I flagged it already. So we talked about gender differences. Do you see different levels of curiosity amongst different generations? And are you seeing the younger generations? You know, we hear a lot and we've talked a lot on the podcast about the, the millennials and the Gen Z stroke Zs approaching the world of work in a different way, particularly Gen Z. Are you seeing them dealing with curiosity in a different way, in the way they express it and pursue it? And also, what about cultural differences? You've traveled a lot. So you, you talked about in, the, the lady in China wouldn't normally talk about the one-child policy. If you're a curious individual and you go into a culture which maybe isn't as open as the one you come from, how do you manage that but maintain that engagement and that innovation that curiosity gives you? Yeah. So let me answer your first question first, just in terms of generations and what does this mean for people coming into the organization? Andy, I feel like I'm kind of going back to that same refrain. They will be curious if we allow them. What we see from the research right now is we. We don't set up structures that do that. Even in this, right? What could they possibly know? They just got here. They just started the job, right? And so it's almost like, you know, just sit down, be quiet, learn the job. Is that what we really want? I mean, we've got someone who's thinking differently. We've got someone who would look at a job and say, I've never done this before. Why do you do it that way? Right? But what happens when we do what I just said? Why do you do it that way? We're like, well, that's the way we do it here, right? Basically get in line and do the thing that we told you to do. What if we actually leverage them to say, you're right. Why do we do that? What are you seeing? What holes do you see in our process? What are the errors in our way? What's technology you know about that we have no clue about? How is this like things that you've done before, but we just don't do it, right? And it's time. It's time and it's behavior. Like that, we, we didn't grow up that way. So why would we expect that we would treat them that way? So again, what we find is they are curious. We just nurture it out of them. We, we teach them how not to be. And so generation-wise, again, I think we talked a little bit about that just in terms of older workers. But there's even some, some more than generational, I'll even say things like, if you stay in a room, there's some research or, or stay in a job. If you stay in a role for more than three years, you tend to be less curious. I think we get ingrained, right? Like we become the know-it-all. There are things like organizations, like newer organizations, surprisingly, tend to be less innovative than older organizations. I think it's because we're trying to put process in place, right? If you're at a startup, it's sort of like we can be sort of curious on the front end, but then we got to figure it out really quickly. And we really value know-it-alls because nobody knows it, right? And so we, we look to the expert. So there's some things that I think more so than generations, it's more, how do we leverage the power of curiosity that's in any of us at any age? And particularly though, like you said, we've got such an opportunity to leverage younger workers and we just have to do it. We have to stop looking at them like they have to come up through the ranks like we did. They, they don't because frankly, there isn't time. Work is changing way too fast. And if we're not leveraging their novice view of the world, I think we're making a huge mistake, a huge mistake. And again, I think they want to hear that. And that's what's going to have them stay. I mean, we have them, you know, where there's often turnover. 
because they're not thriving in the environment and they're going to go look for something new. So how do we make sure that we're giving them something constantly new to run after at, at our own organizations? I think if we can unlock that power, like it's a power. And then I'll answer the second question because I know we're getting up on time. Other cultures, certainly there are definite cultural norms. And I keep going back to George Land's study. We're all curious. I suspect that we're all born with the same curiosity. I mean, there's nothing, we're all humans, right? So whether you're in Taiwan, South Korea, North Korea, the United States, the UK, wherever you're born, I would imagine you're born really curious. I mean, watch any child, watch how we learn, look, look how we explore. And then our social constructs happen. And that does change some things in terms of cultural curiosity. So even just tests that, you know, um, China doesn't tend to be as curious as us. But again, think about their structure. Think about the way their society works. If you know anything about China, it is not embraced, right? It is a very much get in line society, conformist society in some ways. And I'm so stereotyping. So total stereotypes. I know there's lots of uh, evidence you could give me that says otherwise. But when you travel to other places, as long as you are genuinely curious. So again, this goes back to authenticity. There is nothing that people like more than to tell you about themselves and their culture, right? So Andy, if I come to the UK and we sit down and I say, this is fascinating. Like, why do you do it this way? This is so different from how we've done it. And that's genuine. You can't wait to tell me why that is. When it turns to judgment and it looks like I'm judging you for doing it that way because it's different from the way I've grown up or the way that I do things, that's a very different conversation. So I think if we look at it just truly in terms of, genuine curiosity and wanting to just learn and explore and understand you more or your culture more. Like it's actually, it's such a big compliment that I want to spend time getting to know you. I think you're interesting enough that I would be uh, curious enough to ask you questions. I think the opposite though speaks volumes. When you don't ask me questions, let's say this isn't a conversation. Let's say this is in another culture. Let's say this is a leader to someone on their team. When you don't ask questions, when you're not curious about them, it speaks volumes. I'm not interested. You're not worthy enough. I think I already know. So I have a lot of assumptions that I've made. So the opposite of questions, I think is way more damaging than the power of questions. It's a very, very powerful point and a very important one. And, and I have to say, going back to the earlier part of your answer, when you said, you know, young people coming into the workplace and saying, why do we do it this way? That was me when I was in my early 20s, and I didn't make myself very popular by doing so. Uh, so I, I don't think probably things have changed in that sense, although hopefully we're moving towards more open workplaces where we can be more receptive to that new thinking, even if someone hasn't been in the workplace before. Which, which brings me to my last question. So it's a quick fire one, really. I don't know if you can have a quick fire one question, but a quick fire answer. We've talked a lot about how curiosity is suppressed over our our early years and as we grow and mature into adults. So by the time we come into the workplace, people are coming in and it's been sort of almost beaten out of them. But as you said earlier, it's there. Uh, we've just got to release it. So if, if if we've got someone listening to this who says, right, I have all of this curiosity in my team, but they're not expressing it. What are the top three things a leader can do to create that space where people feel comfortable, confident, and able to be naturally curious and drive whatever they're working on forward? Rapid fire on that one, huh, Andy? <laughs> a rapid fire Absolutely. answer. 
<laughs> the three things they could do, role model it, don't be a know-it-all, be a learn-it-all, say it, be okay with I don't know, be okay with we're okay with we don't know. So I would say role model it is the number one. I think we've talked about the power of questions. Ask lots of questions, ask genuine questions. Again, preface it with why you're asking the question. So again, in a position of leadership, be cautious about how questions come off. So that would be the second thing. So it's role model it, ask a lot of questions. And the last thing I would say is reward it. When you see it in front of you, don't smack it down, right? Celebrate it. That's okay. We made a mistake. Let's learn from it. What questions can we ask ourselves, right? So it's this whole like, don't punish it, but reward it. Like celebrate those who are being curious, celebrate those with the crazy ideas, celebrate those who ask the questions. So when it's not you, make sure that you're rewarding those who do. Fantastic. Well, let's celebrate curiosity. Steph, thank you so much for joining me on the Connected Leadership Podcast. Andy, it was a distinct pleasure. You can tell I've got a lot of passion about it. Uh, and you asked really good, curious questions. So I loved your curiosity throughout. So good role <laughs> modeling to you, Andy. Excellent. Well, I, I would hate to fall down at that hurdle because this has become really important. This has become really important over the course of these conversations over the last year or so. So thank you so much to Steph for joining me. It, it is a fascinating topic. It's a, such an important one in relationship building, in leadership. I think one of the things that Steph said that really resonated for me is leaders or, or individuals generally that just don't ask questions and don't show that curiosity. And what does it say to other people when, you, when you're like that? I, I think I can be guilty of that at times. I'm such an opinionated sod at times that I think I'm just happy sharing my opinions and, and don't necessarily always make space for other people's. And we need to do that. So there's a little bit of self-development for me. Uh, and, and for all of us. So I'd be interested to know what you took from the conversation. You know, we're going to be sharing it on social media platforms. What's your biggest takeaway? Feel free to share it there as well. I'm curious to know what you took from this today as well. I hope that it has piqued your curiosity. You want to find out more about this. So certainly do reach out to Steph. The details will be in the show notes and let her know if you've enjoyed this conversation as well. And if you're curious for more things like this, then Stay tuned for another episode of the Connected Leadership Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Connected Leadership Podcast. If you found this valuable, please subscribe, tell your colleagues and friends, share on social media, and post a review on the podcast channel you use to listen to it. And of course, join us again soon for another interesting interview and great Connected Leadership tips.